Good morning, Element. You guys aren't as talkative as the first service. I like had to wait five minutes for them to stop greeting one another. Is this uh, Fourth of July weekend technically, or is that next weekend? Yeah, kind of. It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> welcome to Elements. Good to see all of you. A uh, couple of things. If you don't have a Bible today, there are Bibles underneath the seats. If you don't have one, you can use one. If you don't own one, please take it as our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. There are sermon notes on all of the communion tables around the room. and has all of the scriptures and, and some notes for you to follow along. Also, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. You click on More, click on Events, and you can download. It pick, picks us up by GPS, and you can actually see uh, the, the notes there as well kind of have a lot to cover this morning, so I want to go ahead and jump right in. My name is Eric, and I am one of the pastors here, so please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. Jesus speaking, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the infinite cost that you paid, Lord, to reconcile us back into relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you that now you call us friends. And I pray that this morning you would teach us what that means, the whole idea of friendship and how you have drawn us back into friendship with you and into friendship with one another. So we ask that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> so this morning we are continuing our series called Counterculture, which is based in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is meant to give us instruction on how to live wisely in a world in a way that honors who God is. And as, as we've said before, as Aaron has said, it's not that we are against everything that's in our culture. But by living in true wisdom from God, we'll begin to affect the world in which we live positively because we'll learn to interact with it differently. Now, in the scriptures, wisdom is not less than being moral and good. It's much more than that. It's being so in touch with reality that you'll know the right thing to do in the vast majority of situations in which the moral rules don't apply. You see, we're going to have many, many choices in this life that are within the realm of morality. In other words, they may not be sinful. But which are the wise ones? And wisdom is the ability to know the right thing to do in situations that the moral rules don't address. Now, if you've been here for a while, some of you know that Aaron plans out and he writes a sermon schedule you know, about a year in advance. And typically, he'll leave a few weeks open for others to speak, like me, today. Sometimes the topic is predetermined. Sometimes we get to choose, like me, today. And I'm just always amazed at how God is working in ways that we can't see to coordinate his message to the church. Last week, Aaron talked about singleness and loneliness and God's plan of marriage as the normative call for most people. We didn't plan it like this, but today we're going to be looking at what God has to say about friendship, which I think perfectly complements what we talked about last week. So if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Now, according to the Proverbs, you will not lead a wise life unless you learn to choose to forge or build, and to keep great friendships. You won't experience the full potential of life unless you are good at choosing, building, and keeping terrific friendships. Now, for many of us, 
I think that childhood was the golden era of friendship. Do you remember when you were 11 or 12 years old? And friendship was that person that you would complain about your parents to, no matter how dumb you were, and they were always on your side. Or they were the ones that you would show up at their house for the second dinner to, and nobody thought that was weird at all. They were the ones who you could get into a major fight with, but then the very next day you would be hanging out again like nothing ever happened. Friendship carried this promise of an unspoken bond of availability and companionship. And that companionship brought a joy that couldn't really be explained back then. But now when I think about it, I think that in addition to being generally carefree back then, that the friendship bond had more to do with honesty and emotional connection between friends. I have distant memories of sharing things with my best friend Mario in the fifth and sixth grade that I would only cringe at a few years later by the time I reached high school. You see, at that age, most kids, including boys, are still emotionally transparent and able to experience the life-giving connection and intimacy that our hearts crave. Now, it's not a surprise that girls are typically better at building and keeping intimate friendships throughout a lifetime. And they also don't punch each other just for fun, right? However, boys at that age, they have yet to be taught the unspoken rules of our culture that men are to be strong and independent, and therefore they need to hide their true feelings and emotions. And unfortunately, research shows that by the age of 14, the emotional life of most boys is killed by our culture. And by the time boys become men, they may not have any friends around them at the end of the day, close or otherwise. And if you're a man who connects deeply, especially with other men, our culture wants to make fun of you and claim that you might be gay. That if you crave deep emotional connections and bonds, that that's just unmanly. And unfortunately, these misguided notions of masculinity have led us to a place of isolation and loneliness, as well as stressed out marriages and even physical health problems. And it's obvious when you look at the scriptures that even though God instituted marriage as the primary means of addressing loneliness, that he never intended it to carry the full weight of friendship. God willing that all of us, if we're married, will experience true friendship with our spouses. But as Aaron had mentioned last week, it's possible and it's even common to experience loneliness in marriage. But even if your spouse is your best friend, they were not meant to be your only friend. Many people, again, men in particular, after the loss of a spouse, they find themselves alone and isolated with no other meaningful connections. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I could totally see that if not for the grace of God. I could see myself being in that situation. Now, much of what we're going to be looking at today comes from C.S. Lewis's essay on friendship in his book called The Four Loves, as well as from a message by Tim Keller. We're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at the uniqueness of friendship. We're going to look at how you discover a friend. We're going to look at how you build or how you forge friendships. And we're going to look at where we get the power for friendships. So the uniqueness of friendship, how you discover a friend, how you forge or build a friendship, and where we get the power for friendship. So first, the uniqueness of friendship. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. It says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, this is saying that a friend, in many ways, can be better than a sibling. And this is being said in a a culture that is much more family-oriented than ours. Why would a friend be better than a sibling? In Proverbs 17, verse 17, it says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. What does this mean? 
our siblings, our family, our blood relatives. They're going to be there for us in adversity because they care and there's loyalty there. There's memory and there's history. And so they are going to be for, they're going to be there for us. But they may not like us, right? They may not want to hang out with you for a drink. They may not be the person that they want to spend the most time with. And so, but a friend is someone who has chosen you. There's someone who has chosen you. So the word sticks here in a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's often translated by the Old Testament word cleave, which is a commitment out of a passionate love. And so we see here that a friend is better in many ways than a sibling. And what this is saying is that there is a unique necessity to friendship. There is a unique necessity to friendship. Friendship brings something into your life that family can't bring, that romance can't bring, that nothing else can bring. And we've got to remember that because our culture will tend to put friendship in the back seat every time. And yet, we desperately need it. It's irreplaceable. You see, in an individual culture like ours, it always puts erotic love, romance, sexual love first. I mean, just think about the gossip magazines at the checkout stands, right? You don't read about, like, who's best friends with who, right? It's who's hooking up with who. You don't care about who's BFS, right? People want to know who's hooking up with who. I mean, how many songs can you think about that are about friendship? Maybe a handful. But how many love songs can you call to mind? Quite a few probably, right? How about movies? You know, one of the few major films that is all about friendship, not romance, not family, is The Lord of the Rings. And the beauty of friendship is the main theme. However, those who read the book, they know that the love story part of it was in the appendices, But for our culture, Hollywood had to pull the love story between Arwen and Aragorn out of the appendices and make that a central part of the overall story. And why is it? Because our culture is not turned on by friendship. It's not the most important thing. But to J.R.R. Tolkien, that was the whole point. That was the main part of the story. That's what it was all about. In an individualistic culture, self is most important. And therefore, romance is always put first. In a traditional culture... Family, father, mother, brothers and sisters, that always comes first. In a socialistic culture, it's civic relationships, those with our neighbors, that always comes first. But every culture will put friendship into the back seat. And why do they do that? Because friendship is not a biological or it's not a sociological necessity. Friendship is absolutely voluntary. It's absolutely deliberate. It won't push itself on you. And C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way, comparing the other three loves that he talks about, affection, which is family love, or eros, which is romantic love. He talks about charity, which is the gift-giving love of God. He says, friendship is the least natural of the loves, the least instinctive, organic, biological, gregarious, and necessary. It has least commerce with our nerves or our physical system, our bodies, There's nothing throaty about it, nothing that quickens the pulse or turns you pale and red. And he goes on to explain, if it wasn't for erotic love, none of us would ever exist, right? If it wasn't for affection or family love, none of us would have ever been raised. He said, but biologically considered, we have no need of friendship. We can live and we can breed without friendship. But what's interesting to note is that recent studies have shown that the lack of intimate friendships and intimate community can actually significantly lead to physical health problems. You see, in a busy culture like ours, where we work and we travel long hours, all of the other loves will push themselves on you. 
You're still going to have to deal with and care about your family. You're still going to be driven towards romance. But friendship, which takes very deliberate, intentional time over a period of time, will tend to get squeezed out. It'll tend to go to the back. And yet Proverbs tells us that we won't make it without friends. And friendship love brings something into our lives that is absolutely unique. And from this family-oriented culture of the Proverbs, it says, in many ways, a friend is better than a sibling because they bring things into our lives that a sibling can't. So what do we do? How do we get friends? Brings us to the second point. We learn about the discovery of friendship. Well, what does that mean? Look again, Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Notice the contrast here between companions and friends. You can have many companions or acquaintances or associates, but one friend. And it conveys the idea that true friends aren't really that many. You really can't have that many because they're relatively rare compared to all of your other relationships. And here's the reason why. In Proverbs 27, verse 9, it says... Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. The word sweetness here, it has to do with honey. And this is saying that real friendship, it's like delectably sweet food. And what's interesting is during the time of Proverbs, sugar didn't exist yet. So that which was naturally sweet was all there was, and you had to find it. And so what's the point here? Friendship requires this foundation. It requires an affinity, a common vision a common love that can't be created. It can only be discovered. And in a minute, I'll talk about how this foundation isn't enough. It has to be built upon. But this requires a foundation and affinity that must be discovered. It cannot be created. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he he wrote in his essay on friendship, he says, friendship does not ask, do you love me? So much as, do you see or care about the same truth? Basically, are you passionate about the same things? Are you passionate about the same things. In C.S. Lewis, he put it like this, the typical, of, of, the, typical, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. The beginning of friendship, it's that you too moment where you discover that common affinity or that shared passion. Now, although we can have romantic love and we can have friendship in the same person, in some ways, there's nothing less like a friendship than a love affair. You see, lovers are always talking about their love. But friends, friends never, they, they rarely talk about their friendship. Lovers are face-to-face, absorbed in one, in one another. But friends, they're shoulder-to-shoulder, looking ahead, absorbed in some common interest. And so what makes a friend is not asking, hey, do you want to be my friend, but... You too? You care about that too? That's important to you too? C.S. Lewis, he goes on to say, he says, that's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. If someone asks you, do you see the same truth? And your honest answer is, I don't really care about that. I just want you to be my friend. Then no friendship can arise because there would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And those who have nothing can share nothing. And those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And that's the reason why friendship has to be something that you discover. That's the foundation. But as I said, the foundation is not enough. You've got to build upon that. And that brings us to the third point. That is, a friendship must be built. It must be forged. And how do you do that? How do you do that? In your notes, you've got four points there from Tim Keller. 
Four things from the book of Proverbs that characterize and build true friendship. You can look at these as four marks of true friendship, or you can look at them as four building blocks for developing friendships. Either way. Are you ready? The four marks are constancy, carefulness, candor, and counsel. Constancy, carefulness, candor, and counsel. First of all, constancy. Look again at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. It says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. So does this mean that you need to spend all of your time together to be a friend? Well, no, because Proverbs 25, 17 says, Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house too much of you, and they will hate you. (laughs) We get that, right? We understand. You don't want to spend all of your time together. What it means is that a friend, a friend loves at all kinds of times, good times, bad times, routine, ordinary times. In other words, you can't be a friend without availability. You have to be available. Constancy means that we are available. But not not only that, it means that we are there when the chips are down. We're there when the chips are down. Again, look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend will not let you go to ruin. You see, most of the people who associate with you do so because you're useful to them in some way. Before you get all bent out of shape about that, most of the people who you associate with, you do so because they are useful to you in some way. So you have companions and acquaintances, and you are mutually useful to one another. Some are useful for having a good time, and that's okay. Some are useful for meeting other people. Some are useful for getting things done. We all understand that. But when it's going to take a lot of energy, when you're at the brink of collapsing, and it's going to take a lot of expense and energy to stay in relationship with you, those companions who are with you because you're useful to them in some way say, i got to go, but give me a call if you need anything. But a friend, a true friend, will be there. Because a friend hasn't chosen to make you a means to an end. A friend has made you an end in yourself. They'll be there even if it costs them something. As the old saying goes, a friend in need is a friend, what? Indeed. We get that. Constancy is the mark of a true friend. Secondly, carefulness. Now this is interesting. Look at Proverbs 26, verses 18 and 19. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Why would someone do this? Or look at Proverbs 27, 14. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Why would somebody bless their neighbor early in the morning only for it to be taken as a curse? Because this person is emotionally disconnected. It's when someone doesn't know you well enough to know that that joke actually hurts your feelings. Or when I don't know you well enough to know that you're not a morning person. But, but more to the point, Proverbs 25, verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. This is referring to singing songs of joy. There's emotional disconnection here. If I can be happy when you're sad, then I'm not really your friend. Now it's been said of parenting that for the rest of your life, you are only as happy as your unhappiest child. Any parents, can you relate to that? Why is that? Because like it or not, automatically you are emotionally connected to them. You are vulnerable. But in a friendship, you give the gift of emotional connection. You give it voluntarily. 
And that's why friendship is so amazing. It's because it's a gift. And that's also one of the reasons why you really just can't have too many. You can't survive with too many friends. Because a friend creates that emotional connection as a gift. And as a result, you're unbelievably emotionally connected and sensitive to that person. They know how you're feeling and they're committed to your emotional flourishing. And so first, constancy. And second, carefulness that leads to emotional connection and sensitivity. And thirdly, and this is in contrast to carefulness, is candor. Candor. We would call this truth-telling. In Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. These metaphors are deliberately vivid, and they're paradoxical. Friendly wounds, wounding kisses. Friendly wounds, wounding kisses. What are friendly wounds? These are, this is a metaphor for words that your friend needs to hear, but it's going to be painful for them to hear those words. But what if you're afraid to tell your friend what they need to hear? Well, then the scripture tells us that we're really not being a friend. You see here in verse 5, it talks about hidden love. And that's another metaphor for a person who thinks they're loving by covering and holding back the truth. You say, well, I love that person too much to tell them the truth. But by covering up the truth, we see here in verse 5, it's the same as the work of an enemy in verse 6. It's like being a Judas. It's like betraying with a kiss. Why? Because when you say, well, I love that person too much to tell them the truth, what we're really saying is I love myself too much to have to go through that. I'm not really being their friend. Proverbs 29, verse 5, it says, Those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. What does this mean? It means that if we don't tell our friend what they need to hear so that they get an accurate picture of themselves and and what's going on, then we're setting them up for disaster, just as much as if we were putting their foot in a bear trap. Because without the help of their so-called friend, they'll continue to make decisions that are out of touch with reality, that are unwise, and that are foolish. Can you see how hard it is to be a friend? Carefulness and candor. Carefulness and candor. Candor is I'm telling you the truth. Carefulness is that the painful words that I'm about to tell you are going to create pain for me as well. So you can, see, you can either be careful and just shut up, or you can, be, can't, you can be candid and not care. Either of those are not really that painful. But a friend is con- being a friend is constantly hard because you have to be careful and you have to be candid and you have to be constant. That brings us to the fourth building block, and that is counsel. Look again at Proverbs uh, 27, verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. The word earnest here means from the heart. And the word counsel means advise or deliberate or to resolve. And it carries with it this idea of mutual counsel, to give and to take, to confide in. The idea is primarily of a friend who gives wise counsel by speaking the hard truth in love, but also... They entrust their heart to you by disclosing the deep secrets of their soul. They're vulnerable to you. Do you have a friend like that? Because most of us don't, especially men. And if you do, do you realize how rare that actually is? You see, a therapist, they need to give us advice. But if every time they gave us advice, they became that self-revealing, that wouldn't be right, right? But then there are those, on the other hand, who constantly vent and they want to tell you all of their feelings yet they never give you any counsel they don't counsel you but this is something that only a true friend can do and it's something that we desperately need 
We won't become the people that we need to be or that we can be without it. And there are two aspects to this type of counsel. Here we see that it's sweet, it's pleasant, it's reassuring, sweetness. But look at Proverbs 27, verse 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You see, if you have a friendship where there's intimacy and there's transparency, sharing from the heart, letting one another see all the way down to the bottom, and yet there's all, if that counsel is always sweet and it's always reassuring, or if it's always challenging and it's always clashing, then there's emotional exploitation going on. It's not really loving, but only if it goes back and forth, back and forth where there's a balanced exchange of loving candor and wise counsel and vulnerable transparency Will you have a real friend? And will you become the person that God is calling you to be? And so there you have it. You have constancy, carefulness, candor, and counsel. And I like the way Tim Keller summed it up more simply. He said, a friend always lets you in, and they never let you down. They always let you in, and they never let you down. So if you find somebody who's got that common affinity with you, that foundation, and you build upon it with these building blocks, You've got a friend. Pretty simple, right? Not that hard. I should just leave it there and say, hey, you know, making a friend is really important. Just go do it, right? It's not that hard to do. But the reality is we have a bigger problem than most of us recognize. You see, if you read through the Proverbs and you get this picture of this ideal friend like we just looked at, two things tend to happen to us. On the one hand, we get this feeling of longing. A feeling of longing. There's a longing that comes because if we've experienced this type of friendship at all, our friends are usually taken away from us faster than we can forge new ones. We've got this mobile society where either we're moving away or other people are moving away, and that happens you know, faster than we can actually build or forge them. And so when we look at true friendship the way God designed it, we have this feeling of longing because we don't have all of the friends that our hearts actually need. But not only that, not only do we not have all the friends that our hearts need, we also feel the crushing reality that part of the reason that we don't have great friends is because we are not great friends. We are not being the friends that we should be. And why aren't we? Because it's so hard. It's just so hard to do. Remember, a friend always lets you in and never lets you down. How easy is it for you to be transparent? to really open up and let a person in? How easy is it for you to give that gift voluntarily of emotional availability and connection? It's hard, and we're afraid to do that. And because we're not good at giving it, we're not getting it. Always lets you in. Never lets you down. How good at you are being there unconditionally for a person, no matter what the cost? Where are we going to get the power to be the friends that we need to be, that we ought to be, for that other person, so that we can get the friends that we need to have. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he wanted his disciples to understand the meaning of what he was about to do. And one of the things that he says in John chapter 15, in order to explain what he's going to do when he dies, is with this idea of friendship. In John chapter 15, in verses 12 through 15, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Jesus lets us in. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. 
Now, in Jesus saying this, the, the whole history of the world can be understood now in terms of friendship. The triune God, our, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is a friendship. And being made in His image, we need friendship. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when it talks about God walking in the garden to talk with Adam and Eve, that's a Hebrew metaphor for friendship. To walk together with someone through life, it's a description of friendship. This means that God made us for friendship, friendship with himself and friendship with one another. But we turned on him. And what happens when you betray a friend? Usually that friend turns on you as well, right? But Jesus says to us, I am the ultimate friend who loves at all times. I am the one who's born for adversity. I'm the ultimate friend who will stick to you at infinite cost so that you won't go to ruin. And how does he do that? How does he show us? He says, I am the ultimate friend whose wounds are the wounds of love. Because instead of inflicting them, I am going to take them. Proverbs 27, 6. Again, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But how much more are we to trust him who instead of inflicting them, he took them in our place. Because Jesus on the cross, he gave up his friendship with God so that we could have friendship with God. On the cross, Jesus experienced what we should have experienced. He's the perfect friend. He let us in. How much more emotional connection do you want? His arms were nailed open for us. How much more open could he be? He never lets us down. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he saw his best friends fall asleep during his time of need, and ultimately they abandoned and betrayed him. But Jesus never abandoned them. And he doesn't abandon us by letting us go to ruin. He went to the cross to save us, his friends. He literally went through hell so that we would not go to ruin. He's the ultimate friend that sticks closer than a brother. And if you know that, then it frees you to be the friend that you need to be. If I know that Jesus let me all the way in and he'll never leave me and never forsake me, then I can move out without being afraid of rejection. Not being afraid of being let down because there is one who will never let me down. And we see that it's only by the perfect friendship of Jesus that we're able to be the friends that we ought to be, that others need us to be. And when we do that, we'll find ourselves getting the great friends that our hearts need and that our hearts crave. And one last thing, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that makes true friendship actually possible. Remember how friendship needs to be discovered. There must be a foundation, a common affinity to build upon. And yet we also need that constructive clash, right? As iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. Well, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said, the great paradox of the best friendships is this. He says, friendship requires that rare mean between likeness and unlikeness. It's better to be a nettle in the side of your friend than his echo. There must be very two before there can be very one. Let it be an alliance of two large, formidable natures, mutually beheld, mutually feared, before yet they recognize the deep identity which beneath these disparities unites them. He's saying that we need friends who are deeply like us, but who are also really, really unlike us if we are going to be the people who that God intends for us to be. So, don't we tend to gravitate then towards friends that are just like us since we have those common affinities? Well, yes and no. Because through the gospel, Jesus is breaking into the lives of all kinds of people, different ages and races and personalities and backgrounds and interests, rock and roll lovers as well as country music lovers, right? 
It's crazy. But So th- there's people who may be different from us in every other way, except for the deepest passion of their life is to love Jesus, who through a radical act of friendship, saved them. And so they have that common bond. And when we, when we find somebody whose deepest affinity is the same as our deepest affinity, yet unlike us in every other way, think about the potential of that. You see, Christian friendships should be so radical, so exhilarating, so enriching. Don't be afraid to reach out in friendship. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, we think we've chosen our own friends. He says, but for a Christian, there are strictly speaking no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. At the feast of friendship, it is God who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guest. It is he who sometimes does and always should preside. Let us not reckon without our host. This is why we talk about gospel community all the time, because we really want to encourage all of us here at Element to build those gospel friendships. And that's a place where we really learn to love one another the way God has loved us. That's a space, that's a time when we can spend time together learning how to be careful and how to be constant and how to have candor with one another and how to counsel one another. That's why it's, it's so important. How many of you are in a, in a gospel community? Can I see some hands here? I, I would just want to encourage you and, and tell you to be careful because it, it's so easy for us to tend to shy away, from, shy away from or ignore those who are so unlike us, so different from us. But I would say that we're robbing ourselves of the deep and enriching friendships that God wants to build as iron sharpens iron. And so uh, I know it's easy and it's natural for us to gravitate to those, pe- those people who have the same affinities and the same um, you know, des- desires and the same passions. But yet, if we have that common passion of Jesus and everything else is different, we can truly benefit from that. And God wants to build us into becoming deeper people who love him more and are able to be more inclusive with those around us. I'm going to ask the, um, the band to come back up. And as they do every week, as we go to communion and we take that cracker and we break it, we remember Jesus' body that is broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice and we remember his blood that was shed for us, remember that that's the infinite cost that he paid so that we could be reconciled back to God, so that we could experience that friendship with him, and so that we could be forgiven and we can then offer that forgiveness and experience that friendship with others as well. And as we sing, as there's a time of reflection, there'll be leaders in the back. And I would encourage you, if, if maybe you're thinking about how you've been a friend to somebody or maybe how you haven't been a friend to somebody and you want to pray about that, I would encourage you to go back and pray with them. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're experiencing loneliness and you realize that you really don't have any meaningful connections. I would encourage you to go back and pray with them about that. During this time, we also worship God through our gifts and offerings. We don't pass a plate here at Element, but we have offering boxes along all the doors, and giving is just simply a part of our worship, giving back to God what he has blessed us with. So please pray with me. Father, thank you for drawing us back to yourself. Thank you for calling us friends. 
thank you for enabling us, Lord, to, to be a friend to someone else. We thank you that it's only because of what you've done that we can truly love others and truly be friends to them, friends that they need. Lord, you've built us for friendship. And I pray that we in this room would experience the joy that can come from that, Lord. Even though it's really hard to be emotionally vulnerable and to be connected to someone else because many times our happiness is tied to theirs. But yet, it's so enriching and so rewarding. That's how you built us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would lead us and that you would make us aware, Lord, of those around us that you would have us reach out to in friendship. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, for always letting us in and never letting us down. You truly are our best friend, and we thank you for being there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.